Okay. Um, <clears throat> contrary to your news sheet, it says that Steve Jones will be preaching this morning. I'm not Steve Jones. Um, my name's Jeremy Blakey, but I did speak to Steve this morning, uh, just before the meeting. I said, Steve, have you ever had this experience of sitting at the breakfast table before you preach and sharing your notes with your wife, and she says to you something from the Bible that completely changes what it was you were about to say? And he said, no, no, I don't show my notes to Bev, and I don't tell her what I'm going to say. But I do show her my PowerPoint for her sort of critical appraisal. Um, and, of course, I never show my PowerPoint to Adrienne, so it just shows the difference between Steve and my approach. You can draw whatever conclusion you like from that, other than uh, the Joneses are primarily interested in artistic sort of things, and we're primarily interested in good theology. But other than that... Uh, um, There you go. Um, so, Bev, I will accept any critical appraisal of the PowerPoint, um, other than uh, that's a bit of classical art for you. Um, we've been doing a series since the beginning of the year on Jesus' spirituality, particularly from the Gospel of John. And here we are. We're ending up with the final chapter. If you glance back into John 20 at the end, John's purpose in writing the gospel is very clear. He says, these things are written that you may believe, or the Greek sometimes means there, may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this whole few months looking through John's gospel about how about getting life from Christ, life in his name. So we've done a number of things. We've looked at Jesus' relationship with his Father, Jesus' relationship with the Holy Spirit. We've looked at um, the church united with God. We've looked at our relationship with Jesus. We've looked at um, Jesus and calling himself the vine and our dwelling in him and a number of other things. And beautifully last week, Sheridan unpacked what happens or what's it like and what does God do when we're in a time of doubt and asking the questions, where's God or is God good? Which is as much a part of spirituality as being full of the Holy Spirit. And so we come to the end of this story in John 21. And I was really struck looking at this, just how low-key an ending to the gospel John is. If you read Matthew's Gospel, it ends with the Great Commission. It's glorious and great. Go into all the world preaching the good news, and I will be with you to the end of the age, says Jesus. It's glorious. It's forward-looking. If you read Mark, depending which version is the end of Mark's Gospel, it either ends with the resurrection or it ends with the ascension. Jesus ascended in glory. And if you read Luke's gospel, he ends with the ascension. Glorious. But John's gospel is decidedly low-key in comparison. All the more surprising, because at the end he says Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have room for all the books that would be written. So John had some choice as to what to write in his gospel, reflecting back. And he chose to end it with this incident that we're reading today. And that's worth thinking about. What's John's purpose in writing about this particular incident, about Peter primarily, when he could have 
talked about the glory of the ascension, the glory and the greatness of the commission, rah, 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 all of which I believe, but he chooses to end it on this. So the focus of this story, and we'll read it in a minute, is about Peter. It's probably worth backtracking slightly and working out when this incident happened on the shore of Lake Galilee, where was Peter at? And actually, it's a right old mixture. Peter had clearly encountered the risen Jesus at least twice with the other disciples in the room in Jerusalem. A week apart, the second time when Thomas was there, Peter no doubt was there. Possibly also he'd encountered Jesus individually. Luke's gospel alludes to that um, when the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus come back and report what had happened. The disciples said, it's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. doesn't say anywhere else where that happened, but it clearly happened. And along with all the others, when this had happened, he had been commissioned by Jesus in the previous chapter. In John 20, Jesus has said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And he breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit. That's kind of, I don't know, I I would take that to be a kind of a dress rehearsal, a look out, it's coming kind of thing. For when they hear, in the upper room and tongues of fire, they know what it is. Okay? So Peter was in a good place, having had that. But there's no doubt some confusion as well. How do you follow Jesus when you can't always see him anymore? Is a bit of a problem. And when you don't know when you're next going to see him and he keeps popping up intermittently, what does following Jesus look like? So you would have been a bit confused about that. And uh, we'll know more about that. Listen to last week's talk where Jesus meets people in the shadows of their doubts. And no doubt in the back of his mind also he was feeling some sense of shame and failure at having gone back on his promise to never deny Jesus, never to disown him, and yet having done so three times. There's no doubt that would have been in the back of Peter's mind as well. And yet also there was expectation. Here are the disciples, or a group of them, seven of them, on Lake Galilee, the previous week they'd been in Jerusalem, some 80 miles away. They'd met the risen Jesus there, and here they were in Galilee. Why were they in Galilee? Well, I think they'd gone there to meet Jesus. Jesus had promised to them by the angel at his resurrection. The angel has said this. He's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. That's not just down the road, that was 80-odd miles away. So it's perhaps not surprising they'd pushed off up to Galilee because they'd been told, Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. So, well, we better go as well. What's lovely in that is the angel says, go and tell his disciples, this is in Mark's Gospel, and Peter. Peter is singled out. That he's going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him. So there's clearly expectation in their hearts of seeing and meeting with Jesus. But nonetheless, I think there was some confusion as well. So let's read a bit of the story. 
John 21, and we're going to read the first three verses. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were going together. Instantly, it's worth, interesting, it's worth noting that a number of those were from Galilee originally. Simon Peter was from Galilee, the sons of Zebedee from Galilee. It says Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee. So in some sense, this little subset of the disciples were going back to where they'd come from. And two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. Now, we don't know whether they'd done much fishing recently. Jesus had told Peter to leave it behind and follow him. Um, But they'd been in Jerusalem the previous week, so it's a safe assumption that this might not have been the first time he'd fished since the resurrection, but it might have been. Nonetheless, it was a bit of a blast from the past. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but there's some sense of Peter having gone to Galilee to meet with Jesus, and Jesus hasn't shown up. What do we do now then? Well, let's default back to what I know and go fishing. Here he is. And it's a bit like this. Has anybody ever seen this on their computer? I'm not a great... This is not a problem with the computer. This is on my PowerPoint. Um, Has anybody ever seen this? Something goes wrong with your computer in Windows, uh, as it does with mine quite frequently. That's not a particular comment on Microsoft, but um, I see this quite often. And you have various options to try and get the thing going again, one of which is to go to the last good configuration. That is your most recent settings that worked. And the computer will go back in time and go back to a previous state where it was all all right. Okay. See, I think there's a hint of that here. Peter, not knowing what to do, a bit confused, possibly still struggling a little bit with the fact that he'd failed Jesus, but clearly not clear what to do next, thought, well, let's do what I do know what to do. Let's go back in time three years and go back to where everything was all okay. Let's go back to the last known good configuration. Back to what was familiar, what was safe, what was secure. Back to the place before all the uncertainty of following Jesus. Back to the place before, you know, where I had a steady life, where everything was fairly predictable. Because following Jesus, there's one thing about that then and now is it's not predictable. The last known good configuration back to the most recent setting where life worked properly. And actually for us, when things don't always turn out as we expect them to, whether that's because of our own failure or because of circumstances, or for some reason it's difficult to follow Jesus because we can't quite see where it's going, for whatever reason, there is a temptation to regress back to where the last time everything was okay. That is a temptation. To retreat back to the place, sometimes even for some people the physical place, or the state or style of life where things were okay. And I might be reading too much into the text, but maybe there's a hint of that. And I like to think maybe Peter hadn't been fishing for three years because Jesus had told him to leave it behind and follow him. And yet here he is, 
struggling what it means to, feel, to follow Jesus now he's resurrected. Jesus isn't here. What should we do? Well, it's fish. Let's read on in the story. Let's come to that in a second. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Nope, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple who Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were Peter, I would be having all sorts of flashbacks as this happened. Flashbacks about a previous catch of fish that was miraculous when Peter was called. That's in the top left. In Luke 5, there was a previous miraculous catch of fish. And at the end of it, Peter receives his call. From now on, you will fish people. And they pulled their boats up on the shore and left everything and followed 
Jesus. He would have flashbacks about when he walked on the water. Jesus was in the distance. He said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come over. I'll come over as well. Jesus said, well, come on then. He jumped out of the boat and went. This time he sees Jesus in the distance again. And finding out it was Jesus from John, he jumps out of the boat. He would have flashbacks, most particularly maybe about the Last Supper. We'll go into that in a second. And no doubt he would be remembering also three times he denied Jesus. And three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? And being the sort of person I am, I've stuck this into a little table for you. So, um, but it's a bit like this. It's last time and this time. Last time this happened, this happened. But now it's happening again. And you can't get round that Peter must have been going into sort of deja vu overload here. Because so much of his recent past with Jesus was coming back again in this. See, last time there was a miraculous catch at Galilee. Peter was just a fisherman. Last time when that happened was when Jesus said to him and gave him a commission, you will fish for people. This time, it's happening again, and at the end of it, Jesus says, feed my sheep. Last time, the end of the passage, he, along with the other disciples, followed Jesus. This time, Jesus says, follow me. Last time, when he saw Jesus from a distance in a boat, He said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come over. This time, John says, it is you. It is him. It is the Lord. And he jumps out of the boat. Same thing. To be with Jesus. And perhaps most profoundly, last time, Jesus gave them bread. He'd said to them, if you read the passage in John, I'll read it, a new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? This is in John 13. Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I say to you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. See, last time Jesus had broken bread and given it to them, he talked to them about loving one another. This time, he asks Peter, do you love me? Last time, Peter declared his loyalty for Jesus. I will never disown you. This time... Peter declares his love for Jesus three times. There's a whole book here, by the way, and all these things. We've got to do it all. But also, painfully, last time Jesus broke bread with them, he predicted that Peter was going to deny him. Interestingly, though, if you read the account in Mark's Gospel of the Last Supper... Just after Peter is told that he's going to deny 
sorry, just before he's told that Peter's going to deny him, Jesus says this, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So Peter's thinking, here it is. This last time we were doing this, he said he would come and meet us here in Galilee, and here it is, happening. Oh, crumbs, that was the time I said I wouldn't disown you. Hmm. And then, no doubt, the last time, or maybe a time, that he was around a charcoal fire outside the court and denied Jesus three times. Here he is, around a charcoal fire. Jesus giving him the opportunity to say it right again, three times. This incident, um, please, please, go back and read it. Read your commentaries. There's more there than I've said. It was just replete with associations of Peter's recent experience of following Jesus. Both the good and the bad. Peter couldn't avoid the inference of being confronted with his recent past. It's almost like the whole incident was set up for him. But note that most of the memories are positive ones. And affirming, reminding him of who he was and the call on his life. And Jesus uses those to reaffirm Peter. But it also, as we'll see in a second, Jesus uses them to sort some things out as well. So, how does Peter, how does Jesus respond to Peter? Here's some grilled fish. Well, there's a lot here, but I just want to outline three or four things, and then draw this to a conclusion. Peter, Jesus, first of all, keeps his promise. He told Peter and the other disciples, I'm going ahead of you into Galilee. You'll meet me there. And he does. Despite all the possible slightly mind-distorting confusion of this resurrected person popping up again here and there and not knowing quite where he's going to appear again and quite what to do about it and what following this Jesus looks like now that he's resurrected. Jesus promised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and I will meet you there. I will go ahead of you. And I like to think Peter had a sense of Relief, And that's why he was so eager to jump out the boat and run to Jesus when he realized, here he is, fulfilling his promise, something important is going to happen here. Number one, Jesus keeps his promise. And I mean, I do want to apply it for us in various sort of ways as to whether we've lost sight or confused or even messed up, not quite sure what next... Whatever we're at, let's be sure Jesus keeps his promises. Jesus keeps his promises. Say that again three times. Jesus keeps his promises. See, saying something three times in that culture at that time sealed it. Secondly, interestingly, with all the issues he could have dealt with, with Peter... He actually prioritized fellowship. They sat down at a meal together. He prioritized friendship. It's funny because when we approach the Lord, forgiveness is often the first thing on our mind. Or am I just weird? 
Uh, yes, I'm just with <laughs> Thanks, Danny. <laughs> and yet Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. He doesn't start with your forgiveness. He starts with worship and fellowship and right relationship with God. And Jesus here, no doubt, Peter needed to receive his forgiveness, but denying it's not the first thing Jesus did. They just sat down and had a meal together. Jesus blessed them with a big catch. We kind of failed to see that economically that was quite a blessing. It was a blessing. And he provided for them and actually unconditionally ministered to the whole person first. They sat down and had a meal. If I can take a little side note here about Jesus' spirituality, there's nothing more spiritual than sitting down and eating with people. There's a whole spirituality about eating together because it's a place of connection, both horizontally and vertically. Let's do that more and more, that when we eat together, let's understand God is joining us together and joining us with him. Jesus used meals to be spiritual. Let's do the same. A meal is both (coughs) food, friendship, I'd like to think it deals with your physical needs, your emotional needs, and has spiritual significance. Leslie Newbegin says this, the sharing of the meal is the unveiling of his presence. Good, Anna. Let's expect to encounter Jesus when we eat together as brothers and sisters. But there's an echo here of Elijah as well. Now, Elijah was a great man of God, and Elijah had a showdown on Mount Carmel, defeated the prophets of Baal and all the spiritual forces behind them as well, no doubt, and had a rip-roaring time and then ran away, exhausted, in fear, and wanting to die. I don't know about you, that does make um, my sense of failure sort of come into perspective, really. I think if I was Elijah, I would have had a little bit of triumph that God had sorted out the prophets of Baal. I wouldn't want to die and feel like kind of was at the end of my tether, and yet God restores him. Firstly, in fact, Elijah says, I've had enough. Not about you, but I think if I'd seen that happen through my hands, I'd I'd think, well, I'd like a bit more of this, please. You know, defeating a few more. Anyway, there you go. (laughs) But he ran away. He ran away from Jezebel and said, God, I've had enough. And God restored him with food and water and sleep and fellowship, and revelation, and then said, now get back on track. And he did. So let's not underestimate the spirituality of being restored by quite normal, everyday things. Because Jesus did. So Jesus, first of all, responds by keeping his promise. Second, by prioritizing fellowship with his disciples. Thirdly, he does resolve the past for Peter, both negatively and positively. There's a sense in which Peter is taken back lovingly to heal the memory of his own failure, but to be given the chance to put it right. I like that. See, repentance here isn't just saying, God, I'm going to turn a different way. The word repent means to turn away. Actually, part of repentance can be just going and putting it right. 
And I think sometimes we get a bit sort of um, conceptual about how God forgives us. We say to God, I repent, please forgive me, and then it's sorted. But actually, it's a little bit more earthy here. Jesus doesn't say to him, repent, he just leads him through an opportunity to get it right now. He just leads him carefully through an opportunity to put right what he got wrong. He denied him three times. And he gave him the opportunity to affirm, I really do love you, Lord, three times. Some commentators in the past have read significance in different Greek uses of the word love here. The slight problem with that, I think, in that they are used a little bit more interchangeably in the New Testament than we'd like to make that neat. What I would take here as important is he said it three times. See, in that culture, if you said three times something, that really sealed with it, sealed it as true. I remember when I was a kid, I've got a cousin, she's French. Uh, my mother, her sister, became a French citizen, and her daughter is French, French-speaking. And if she'd come to stay, uh, which she did a few times when I was sort of between the age of five and 11, um, there was always a bit of a problem because she couldn't speak much English, I couldn't speak much French, she's two years younger than me, and we would often get into arguments, and I knew enough French to know the words oui and non. Um, so we would have this battle, she'd say oui, and I'd say non. And then she'd say oui, and I'd say non. And then she'd say si, and I'd turn to my mum and say, what does that mean? And that means yes, and that's the end of it. That's what, that's what that means, pretty much. Something like that. No argument. So if you say something three times the same device. It's like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It's holy, holier, holiest, and we can't say anything more about his holiness if you say three, something three times. Three times he affirms, I love you, means I really do love you. In contrast to, I really, do, really don't know him at all. He had sealed in his heart, and in one sense, I want to go down this route, what you say does take hold of you. So there was something in his heart where three times he said, I never knew this man. I'm not with him. He said it three times and that sealed a course. And now Jesus was giving him a chance to undo it. We have to be careful what we say. The mercy of God is he does hold us to it, but he does give us a chance sometimes to say it again properly. Maybe when Jesus says in the story, do you love me more than these? There's some debate amongst the commentator who the these were. If it was the other disciples, maybe Jesus was just referring him back to Peter's own words where he said, even if all these others fall away, I never will. And Jesus is saying, look, they didn't fall away. They're still loving me. You blew it, but now I've got you a chance. Do you actually love me more? these ones that you so easily said, oh, they might fall away. I won't, but you did. That's repentance, being given a chance to put it right. I believe there's some simple things this morning. God wants to give you the chance to put right this morning. It's not so much about saying, God, please forgive me. It's God says, you're forgiven, just go and put it right. Finally, Jesus restates and redefines Peter's calling. I love this. You see, Jesus does take Peter back to a last known good configuration. But it's not the one of fishing and the life before Jesus. It's back to what he's already said about Peter, which isn't null and void because he denied him. 
If we mess up, it doesn't necessarily null and void the call of God on our lives and what God's given us to do. Repentance brings us back on track. I love that. I wouldn't be here doing this now if that wasn't true. And probably neither would the rest of us. Praise God. that God is the God who redeems and allows us to repent and come back time and time again in his mercy and get on track with the call of God on our lives because of the scripture in the New Testament says about Israel, the call of God is irrevocable. Praise God. I'm slightly ringing here, Chris. So he takes Peter back, but the last known good configuration for Peter that Jesus wants to bring him back to is not before you ever got into this Jesus thing, it's the call of God on his life and all the positive things, all the positive associations from his memories that this scenario has brought out. Nothing had changed in that. Peter was actually central to God's plan and has his denial had not disqualified him from that. Interestingly, he addresses him as Simon and not Peter. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Simon was, of course, his pre-commissioning, pre-sort of, you will be the rock on which the church is built, name. And interesting, Jesus, I like to think slightly playfully, calls him by his previous name. Don't know why. Maybe it's just heightening for Peter the memory of the occasion when his name was changed and he was given a purpose and a ministry. Maybe it just heightens it. Hang on. I'm taking you back there, Peter. I'm not taking you back to before you ever met me. I'm taking you back to that point where I said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I'm taking you back and reminding you that I told you that. Maybe it also implies you can't be Peter the rock without relationship to Christ. And actually, whatever the call of God is, we can't be that, do that, fulfill that outside of relationship with Christ. His previous calling was to feed my sheep. Sorry, his calling this time was feed my sheep. Previously it was either fishing for people when he was first grabbed to follow Jesus and being the foundation of the church, being a rock. In one sense you could argue that the new calling, feed my sheep, which Jesus says to him three times in slightly different ways, is a synthesis of the first two things. Read Peter's letters and see a pastor who's concerned about people and who's concerned about building the church. That's shot right through. In fact, the theologians can't find a central theme around Peter's letters because they seem to address all sorts of issues, but if I had a theme, it's getting people to be the body of Christ effectively. That's what it's about. However, notice that the cost of the call involved death. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. bit like the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep, maybe. And if you're going to be a good shepherd like Jesus, which is what Peter was called to, 
If it doesn't lead you to physical death, it will at least die to your own wishes time and time again. And that hurts. And finally, Jesus finishes it simply by saying, follow me. Follow me. In hindsight, putting the resurrection appearances together, Peter saw Jesus probably at the most three more times after that. And yet he somehow, if you read Acts, understood that following was by faith, not by sight. I believe God wants to speak to some people this morning who've just sidelined a bit from following Christ. It's following by faith, not by sight. It's following the call that he's given you already. God wants to perhaps just re-invoke that for some people this morning. But it's following what you already know. It's not something new. Peter was just being taken back to what he already knew and saying, Jesus says, now follow me. Not quite the end of the story. Let's pick it up again in verse 20. Where did we get to? Oh yeah, there you go. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, we can assume the author of the book, was following them. This was the one who'd leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? John's saying, oh, that's me, by the way. When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumour spread amongst the brothers that this disciple wouldn't die. But Jesus, there you go, heresy in the first disciples already. It's amazing what you can come up with if you mishear something. But Jesus did not say that he would not die, but only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Just as a little aside to finish this off, it's not really any concern of yours by comparison what somebody else's calling is. Jesus uses very strong words there. What is that to you? If I want John to follow me in a completely different way and do a completely different thing, what's that to you? You follow me. Just in case there's any here, of course, you're all very holy, who one thing that trips you up in following Christ is being envious of somebody else's call and ministry. Jesus says, what's that to you? You follow me. Just in case. There probably aren't. I've just occasionally felt that, but I'm probably the only one here. But just in case we're tempted to, God, I'd love to go and do that. God, why am I here doing this when you've called him to... Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. And for completeness, let's read the last verse. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was written down, I suppose even the whole world would have not room for the books that would be written. And so the story ends. But I like to think that in writing this story about Peter... John was connecting what happened in the Gospels 
to what happened in Acts. Because the next time we come across Peter and John together, rather than Peter saying, what about him? They're working together, bringing power and the kingdom and the power of the Holy Spirit and healing people together in the early church in Acts. So it looks like Peter didn't spend too much time worrying about what John was going to do. Instead, he got on with following Jesus. It's like to say, if you're off track, or you sense you're off track with God's call on your life, whether that's through your own failure, if you can't sense where Jesus is going right now, or you're asking the question, what next? It's not appropriate to regress back to the time when it was safe and just go back to what you know to be okay. In sense, Jesus wants to reaffirm his call on our lives and, if necessary, give you the opportunity to put it right if you've messed up. Ultimately, in this story in Galilee, Peter ran to Jesus through the water. And don't let failure or uncertainty or confusion or just feeling sidelined keep us from running into Jesus' presence time and time again. If he'd never gone to Galilee on the promise that Jesus has got ahead and was going to meet them there, I don't like to think where Peter would be, sidelined out of history, maybe. Forgiveness for Peter looked like this, a chance initiated by Jesus to say it right. And interestingly, Jesus didn't say, you're forgiven, but effectively he said, get on with the job, because you're forgiven. I believe this morning there's some people God wants to give the chance to put things right, but also there's some God wants to say, get on with the job. Get on with the job. Amen.